Welcome back to The Buzz on Business. On this episode, Rachel Brown sits down with Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship, Pear Bylan. Pear believes there are two things people need to know to be a successful entrepreneur. Welcome to another episode of the Buzz on Business podcast. This is Rachel bringing you more insight to the world of entrepreneurship. Today's guest is one of the best professors I've ever had, Dr. Pear Byland. Pear, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I've been so excited to have this conversation with you. I wanted to bring in more of kind of our research faculty to give this whole other side of entrepreneurship, but your story even just getting to Stillwater, Oklahoma is an interesting one because you're from Sweden. So how do those two places connect? Well, they don't really. That's a (laughs) a short answer, right? So it's a really long story. I started out in business, so in business school, but I did not actually make it into the business program. So I made it into a business and IT program. Mm. And this was in the 90s. So I stuck around and got a master's degree in 99, which was just when the dot-com bubble was about to burst. So I started a career uh, right when the bubble was bursting, (laughs) but I managed to hold on to that job. Uh, And while I was in that business, which was sort of programming and and business consulting, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, I was also studying politics and was involved in politics in Sweden. So I got a a master's degree in political science and political theory at the same time. And while I was working, this was probably 2003 or so. Um, my then girlfriend, now wife told me that, why the heck are you doing what you're doing? <laughs> you are miserable. You should quit your job and do something else. Go back to school. Cause what I was doing was reading and writing and debating and that sort of thing. As mm-hmm. soon as I got home from work and basically through the night as well. So I started applying for grad school again, but for a PhD program to get into academia. And I eventually get, got into a program through a contact in agricultural economics at the university of Missouri, mm. which is an obvious step from Sweden. Very linear. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, the problem was that the PhD program in Sweden is a fully paid position. So they don't, they can't afford a whole lot of them. Mm. And many people want those cushy jobs. So I couldn't get in because my research topic was way too traditional and I don't really fit any of those categories that are prioritized. Mm -hmm. So I simply couldn't get in. Um, But I could get into agricultural economics in Missouri. So I left for Missouri, had a little bit of a culture shock there. Uh, I'm sure. Mid-Missouri is nice, but it's not Sweden. True. Um, And I had already been in the U.S. studying in college for a year. So I I knew some things, but that was in Honolulu. And Honolulu and Mid-Missouri are not quite the same things either. Still very different, yeah. Yeah, a little bit different. Um, And from there, I mean, I, I, I I know nothing about agriculture. But I studied economics and I studied uh, organizational economics and entrepreneurship and management and that sort of thing. Uh, but since I was in agricultural economics, I was sort of not a real economist and, and I couldn't do anything agriculture. And I also couldn't get a job in, in entrepreneurship or management since I was not one of them. 
But I happened to play squash with the department chair in the management department from the business school across campus. And they were looking for someone to teach entrepreneurship because they didn't have anyone. And they didn't, I guess they didn't care too much about it either. So they could take anyone. So there I was, I was anyone. I met that criterion. Uh, so I got a job as an adjunct teaching at the University of Missouri. And while I was there, they opened a position that fit my interests and my background perfectly on policy and entrepreneurship at Baylor, just doing research. So I left for Baylor, was in Waco for two years. And then during my second year, the position here at OSU opened and I was fortunate to get it. And well, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a ride, but this is home. So now you're at OSU, you're teaching and doing research. What exactly is your field of research since you have such a diverse background? It is just like my background, really. <laughs> I'm all over the place. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in, in uh, I guess the core thing that I'm going for is economic literacy. Because what, what I've realized myself and also in discussing with other people, whether in politics or with students or my my peers or whoever, is that economic literacy is, I mean, the economic way of thinking is such a powerful way of thinking. It uncovers so much about how the world is actually, how it actually works. So that's something that I want everybody to get a feel for, or at least be exposed to it. They can choose not, not to use it if they want to, but but still that's, that's sort of core to it. And I think in entrepreneurship, it is super powerful because it shows where the entrepreneur is in the market economy, what the role of entrepreneurship is in the economy and in economic growth and how regulations affect the entrepreneur and vice versa. So I'm doing all, all of that stuff sort of floating around a little bit. So I do institutions and in entrepreneurship. I do regulations and entrepreneurship. I do the market process. And I've also dabbled a little bit with how to do research in the social sciences, because that sort of fits in there too. So I have a few papers on that. So I am pretty much all over the place. I love that though. And you're published in journals where most academics put out their work. You also have things in entrepreneur.com, a lot of different places on the web, but then also Twitter. Please tell, tell us more about how you jumped into Twitter and essentially gaining over 17,000 followers. Yeah, that is my greatest scholarly achievement by far. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I mean, Twitter is this, this weird thing that I don't think anybody understood, not even the creators when they started it. And I didn't understand it at all. I just couldn't get it because I was one of those academics, you know, where we use very long words in very long sentences and we use like in a sentence without like four commas that's not really a sentence is it because you're not you're not confusing anyone so uh in on twitter it used to be 140 characters so i didn't do much i since i was in it before i was pretty early on just signing up and getting my handle because i like to use my real names so i'm sort of an oddball on on the internet uh, for using my real name. And then I started doing the whole uh, economic literacy thing and just commentary on how to think about events and things like that. And it's suddenly I sort of found how to do it and it, it took off. So it, some some short, pithy comments 
which are much easier now when you can use 280 character. I mean, it's wow. like a, it's like essay format, <laughs> right? Um, but also, also doing the whole tweet storm things, like a whole thread where I can, it, where I can elaborate a little bit on, on what I mean and, and, and sort of bring home the point. So I do that. And those, those tweet storms, they really take off. I mean, they have hundreds and hundreds of retweets and, and these are really, I mean, I, I think they're super interesting. So don't get me wrong, but I, I wouldn't expect people on Twitter to think that, oh, look at that, a 35 tweet tweet storm on economic theory. Great. <laughs> right. But uh, apparently it is actually fascinating to people. And I, I think they, they learn a lot too. Well, I know because I took one of your classes when I was an undergrad, I took my sophomore year, I think, but in a lot of ways, I feel like you've continued to be a professor to me in a lot of ways, because I'm still learning so much from you on Twitter. And it's just, that's the great thing that you mentioned about the Twitter threads is you can make this pretty complex idea and break it into something simple and easy to absorb. And it's that convenient, but it's still so challenging. And you definitely have a tendency to be a counterweight, I think, to a lot of people's arguments on Twitter. And and I want to be, I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's part of the, Part of what I what I do because I think the discussion is more interesting than than the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And and science is like that too. I mean, yeah, you have lots of studies published in journals and all all this stuff. They're usually pretty boring, and they don't say a whole lot either. But it's it's in the discussion where others critique, and then they build off of other other ideas, and then and this whole discussion, this whole sort of stream of of different contributions. That's what makes sort of a body of knowledge. So I think that the discussion sort of Socratic thing is what is important. And I mean, that's, you know, that too, that's how I teach as well. And I ask a lot of questions. I don't, I don't preach to students, but I want to speak with them sort of horizontally rather than vertically. And I mean, it, it is a discussion. And if I force someone to say something pretty much, um, and <laughs> then I ask questions about it and I ask others to comment on what they said and then we'll see where we end up. And so I don't know where, where any of these discussions in class are, are going at all. I mean, we, we have readings and we have sort of a topic, but other than that, it's really the, the students that determine where we go. I, I'm so glad that you transitioned this to your classroom philosophy in a lot of ways, because I was going to say that how you are on Twitter sounds exactly how you are in the class that I took. I took your heroes and villains class, which was this super fascinating discussion about entrepreneurship and where we land. Are we heroes? Are we villains? But we watched movies. So I remember signing up for the class, looking at the syllabus and be like, oh, like this will be kind of cool, kind of easy. Like we watch movies for homework. Like what kind of class is this? And then we get into class and it's small and it's really comfortable and then you start pulling out the questions and you start pointing at people and what do you think and what do you think and you would be the devil's advocate but I I love that classroom setting and I hadn't really seen that until now I'm in grad school and that's how most of my classes are but I I gleaned so much from that type of classroom philosophy that you had well I'm, I'm glad to hear that and I I hope that is the case for most people and I mean when I was in college I was one of those really really shy nervous guys so i was the one hiding in the corner and if if the professor looked my way i would sort of get palpitations and started sweating and i cannot you know, imagine one that. of those well i mean you, you can work yourself out of that 
but I, I know that there are, of course, students in the classroom who are like that. So I'm not forcing anyone to, to speak or to be part of the discussion, but everybody should be there and, and listen to it, right? And I think in my own experience, even though I was nervous like hell uh, to speak in, in the classroom, it really helped when, when I was sort of more or less forced to say something because I had ideas, I had thoughts, I had, I, I could express myself, I, and I just didn't dare to. But if I if I did say something, I mean, it was a contribution to the discussion. So it, I think everybody should speak up. But if they don't, if they don't want to, then fine. So, how does your belief about like the college experience translate into how you are in the classroom, how you are with your students? Well. I, well, I, I see it as a, a, like I already mentioned, a discussion. So it is really about the process. So we have a full semester. We have a topic. Yes, I've studied it before. I hopefully know a little more than most of the students, right, on, on that topic. So I can add facts and I can add viewpoints and, and what have you. But it's really about the students reading the material and then adding their viewpoints. So it is really a journey throughout the semester. And it's not so much about memorizing what the readings are about. And you can't, you probably remember that too. You can't really memorize the discussions because mm -hmm. they're all over the place. And where they go, who knows? Right. Then the next the next class, it's going to be very different. So and it's not really about where we end up, it's how we ended up there. And who contributed and in what manner did they contribute? It, it's really about learning how to formulate um, your ideas and learning that other people have other perspectives, even though they look like you, they seem to be from the same place as you and everything, but they might have very different ideas of how the world works, how the world should work, how they just read a text and they read it differently. And by voicing your different opinions, you learn from each other. So it's, I think that's, that's sort of broadening your mind through just exposing yourself to different perspectives. That's, that's super important. And I think on, on, on a college campus like ours, with people from so many different backgrounds too, you can learn a lot by just having people in a room and, and chatting for a bit. I, I completely agree. And that was certainly my experience in your class. Again, this was so abnormal for most undergraduate classes to be set up in this sort of style. It's definitely something that looks a lot more like graduate classes and things that I'm experiencing now, but it was so helpful for me to be forced to have my own opinion, not just to listen and absorb and memorize, but to be challenged and to have someone else's perspective, to have you give a counterpoint and it really challenged my belief. And, you know, that's something that translates into the rest of my life, not just how I am in a particular class, but how I interact with the world in general and how I approach problem solving. And, you know, I certainly have you to thank to start me on that early um, in, in undergrad. Right. The, the most important quality that you could have is how to think. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and we, we're sort of, fool to believe that everybody can think and we're equally good thinkers but thinker thinking is a skill it takes a lot of work to learn how to think in a, in a in a good way there are good ways and bad ways to think and there are just empty opinion sh shouting off 
Mm-hmm. Right. So just putting things together and pro- producing a coherent argument and also being being a little bit persuasive when to others, that's super important. That's a skill that you can use always and and forever, right? In, in any context. And that's what I think college should really teach a whole lot more. But it's it takes a it, it's really, really hard. It takes a lot of work, right? And and you have to dare uh, to let the students go too. So I mean, many of the courses that, that we offer, we have to teach facts, right? We have to teach information. So you should take a course and then you should know a few things about accounting or what have you mm-hmm. all of these things you, you should know stuff right you should know what a cell is if you take biology course and all this stuff so it's not all about just thinking but you should at least have that experience i think on a, on a college campus that you you learn how to use the information too and today it's when i was in college I said oh well there's so much in books that maybe you shouldn't learn just to regurgitate stuff from from the books because you can just look them up in books well nowadays we have the freaking cell phone (laughs) so we can just look it up we have it the whole world in our pockets so why would you memorize a book that you already have in your pocket it's better to memorize what was the book about what was the important idea what did i learn from it how does that relate to other stuff that i i know from other contexts and how does that make me a better person how do i learn more about the world because I have gone through that book and I've discussed it with others and we shared opinions on, on how to interpret it. And how especially important to bring it full circle is that type of thinking to entrepreneurship, how to pitch, how to be ready for investors' questions. Have you thought through all these different scenarios? How are other people going to react to this? What are other people's perspectives and opinions going to be? I see this so directly translating into, you know, I can't just take information from a textbook and make a company. It requires much more critical thinking than that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, an entrepreneur, you you can't repeat what is in a book. You can't follow a manual because there isn't one. There are some models and we teach those models, right? How, how to start a business and what to think about and when to involve the customer and all this stuff. And those are good, but those are rules of thumb. You can't just say that, oh, you should do this and then that because it, then you have a business idea or or you have a business opportunity that well, it doesn't fit anymore. So you have to critically assess that situation. You have to figure out how to deal with it. And you have to figure out how to make your value proposition unique. I mean, you are offering something to consumers and you have to stand out in one way or the other, which means you have to understand them. And which means you have to sort of put yourself in their shoes, but you also uh, you also have to figure out what shoes they will be in when you're ready to offer something, right? So um, I, I usually say on, when, on podcasts and, and, and in speeches and stuff like that, that there are really two things you need to know to be a successful entrepreneur. And one is you need to know people because that's what you're dealing with all day long. And you need to know, you need to have some form of economic literacy to understand where the whole economy is sort of going and understand where you fit in this whole picture. And if you have those two, I mean, then you're going to beat most entrepreneurs. Then the rest is just details, basically. How can our listeners follow you, particularly on Twitter, to keep up with all of this? Well, my handle is my name, like I mentioned, right? So it's the at sign and then P-E-R-B-Y-L-U-N-D. 
It's that simple. (laughs) Now, Pear, as we start to wrap up our podcast, we have a fun little thing we do called the lightning round. You don't know these questions ahead of time. I'm going to ask them and you just give me your first answer that you have. Are you ready? I guess the real question is, do I know the answers beforehand? (laughs) No, you don't. You get to think of them on the spot. (laughs) All right. What's your favorite genre of music? Heavy metal. See, that's such a surprising fun fact and I love it so much. (laughs) What languages do you speak? Oh, okay. Well, Swedish is my native language. I'm okay in English. (laughs) Um, My third language was German and I've learned Mandarin Chinese. But I mean, the German and Chinese, I don't use them a whole lot. So uh, I wouldn't say I'm fluent. I was at one one point. (laughs) What was your very first job? My first job? I think I was stocking shelves in a small uh, supermarket. Great. Um, How did you meet your wife? Oh, goodness. Okay, so I met her at a sort of a conference for student organizations with a political twist in Sweden, um, where I was known for my ideas and she was sort of known for her ideas and she wanted to discuss those. So very late at night uh, during one of the parties that lasted all night, um, she pulled me aside and asked me uh, how I could think what I think. <laughs> and then we couldn't finish it that night. So we continued emailing back and forth. And then we met in person, a little more sober than the first time. <laughs> and then, well, and then here we are. I think that is a perfectly pair way to start a relationship. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> All right, last question, a little easier, hopefully. Who's your favorite Marvel character? Yeah, this is a good question. That's a good question too. Spider-Man is Marvel, right? Yes. Okay, let's go with Spider-Man. I cool. liked Spider-Man when I was a kid. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, Pear, it's been such a joy getting to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Buzz on Business podcast. Be sure to follow us at OSU Entrepreneurship on Facebook and Instagram and at Riata Center on Twitter for all of our events and updates. I'll see you on the next episode. Hello, everyone. To end this episode, I wanted to share what happened 100 years ago today. In 1921, the first Miss America pageant was held. Originally called the Inner City Beauty Contest, 16-year-old Margaret Gorman was crowned Miss Washington, D.C., and would later become Miss America in 1922. The pageant quickly grew in popularity, and it is said that over 300,000 people came to see the pageant in 1923, where over 70 entrants competed. 100 years later, the 51 competitors are judged on their talent, passion, and ambition to earn the crown. This one is so special to me because I was able to compete in the 2020 Miss America competition, where I placed third runner-up. 
Miss America is one of the largest scholarship providers of young women in America. So it's really, really special to be able to compete and be a representative of a state and go to a national competition like the Miss America organization presents. It was really fun to be Miss Oklahoma in 2019 and 2020. I was able to travel across the country and because of my time in the Miss America organization, I've been able to continue my education with over $50,000 in scholarship money. This is so exciting. So happy 100 years to the Miss America organization.